Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. I'm going to be sharing um, this evening a bit around something I've, I've been sharing on uh, for a while, just around the life of Elijah. So I'm going to be sharing from 1 Kings 18. I shared this morning um, on one, the end of 1 Kings 17, and um, the resurrection of the widow's widow of Zarephath's um, son. <clears throat> and um, I'm just going to go on with that. Um, so let me let me just start off by by reading that portion of. Um, scripture. It's, um, it's a relatively long portion of Scripture, uh, from uh, chapter 18, verse 1 to 19. Uh, but it's quite an interesting portion of Scripture, and I'm going to just highlight a few ideas from it this evening. So it says, uh, After a long time, uh, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went and presented himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep our horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go and tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong? asked Obadiah that you have handed uh, your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever, the nation, whenever a nation or kingdom claimed uh, you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord will carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab, and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet, I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifteen each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When, I, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's uh, family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commandments and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And, um, you know, 
this, the context of this story is drought and famine. Uh, the scarcity that inevitably uh, um, results from doubt. Um, but we're also going to look at both the cause and the effect of drought and that scarcity uh, that comes with drought. You know, sometimes, um, how shall I put it? Um, have you noticed that the scarcity of something in our lives is often caused by our hostility or bad attitude towards it? I don't know if you've noticed that. I mean, th- this is true, um, not only spiritually, but just naturally as well, relationally. Think about a boss. You know, someone uh, who is high up in an organization, has a lot of authority in an organization. What will happen if that boss is constantly hostile and has a bad attitude to people who bring him bad news? What will happen? People will stop bringing in bad news. <laughs> if you're constantly hostile towards bad reports and people bringing you bad news, then eventually people will only tell you what you want to hear. If you're constantly um, only receiving the news you want to hear and rejecting and even punishing the news that you don't want to hear, eventually people will only tell you what you want to hear. And that's why so often the higher up people go in in an organization, the less they hear the things that they most need to hear. Because people more and more filter what they tell them. Because they don't want to give them a bad report. They just want to tell them good news. And that's why it's just an organizational reality that leaders often, often lose touch with what's going on in the ground, on the ground of their organizations. They lose touch and they start making bad decisions because they're no longer in touch with the reality of what's going on. That's true for government. That's true for the private sector and and organizations in the private sector. Um, It's true for the church. It's true all over. Um, Think of it on a more personal level. What will happen if um, you constantly reject the loving correction of true friends? Eventually, you won't have any more true friends who will correct you. Eventually, you'll just have a bunch of yes-men um, and insincere friends around you who tell you what you want to hear, who flatter you, because that's what you want. You might say, no, 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 I don't want flattery. But then don't constantly reject <laughs> the correction and the loving criticism of people who are true friends. You see, sometimes we cause our own scarcity. Sometimes we cause our own droughts. And to some extent, um, that, is, that is what has happened here in, in, in this story. Um, and, and this story actually tells us a few things. It, it talks about two droughts, number one. It t- tells us about two droughts. Secondly, it tells us the cause of those two droughts. And thirdly, it, tells, it shows us a few different possible responses um, to that cause. So let, let's just look at the, at the two droughts. Um, notice... It says in, in verse 1, uh, 1 Kings 18 verse 1, After a long time, in the third year, uh, the, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. In the, it says here in the third year. The third year from when? Well, it's, it's the third year. 
the third year since the beginning of the first chapter the previous chapter and let me just read you the first two verses of the previous chapter 1 Kings 17 verse 1 and 2 says now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab the same king Ahab as the Lord the God of Israel lives whom I serve there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word so it's the third year after that and then listen to what what it says in verse 2 then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You see the contrast. In the one, God says to Elijah, go and hide. You know, he, he sort of brings his message, does his mic drop, and then he runs. That's the word of the Lord to him. Run and hide in the Kerith Ravine on the other side of the Jordan, outside of the promised land. Okay? And in contrast to that, three years later, God says to him, now go and present yourself to Ahab. And I'll fulfill my word that rain will only come at my word. Okay. Now, it's interesting um, that there were two famines in the land. I, I shared in, in, in a previous one, and I'm not going to um, sort of share in detail about that, that God's provision follows God's word. So God's word comes to Elijah, and God says to Elijah, Go and hide in the Kerith Ravine. And it says in verse 4 of, of 1 Kings 17, you, you will drink from the brook and I will order the ravens to feed you there. So God's word is, go and hide in the Kerith Ravine and God's provision follows God's word. Uh, eventually the brook dries up um, and then uh, sometime later the brook dried up uh, and, um, because there had been no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him again, to Elijah again. Go at once to Zarephath in Sidon and stay there. I've commanded a widow uh, in that place to supply you with food. So once again, the word of the Lord comes and says, Go to Zarephath, which is in Sidon, in the kingdom of Phoenicia, in uh, Baal's own backyard. Uh, he was the, the god of, of Phoenicia. And God says, Go there, because I'm going to provide for you there. Now, I want to I insult Baal, you know. So even though there's a drought in his land, I'm going to, in his very backyard, provide for you during the drought through a widow. But once again, we see the pattern of the provision of God following the word of God. God says, go there, and then that's where you'll find the provision. Okay? So if the provision of God follows the word of God, then it makes sense that the drought for God's word had to be broken before the drought for water could be broken. See, that's the two droughts that was going on simultaneously in Israel. Number one is a drought for water, a physical drought, but then there was also a spiritual drought for God's word, for the word of the Lord. Um, and <laughs> when, when Elijah meets Obadiah, you know, Obadiah tells him, listen yeah, the king has been searching high and low for you. He's been searching in every kingdom in the whole world, you know, the, every kingdom that he knows of, he sent messengers and they've been searching for you everywhere and he couldn't find you. And he's, he's so surprised that, he, that he's ran into Elijah, you know, without even looking for him. You know, he just runs into him. Um, and he says to him, the king has been searching high and low for you. Ahab has been searching high and low for you. But here's the thing. Because Ahab was searching high and low for Elijah to kill him, because he's the bearer of God's word, that's why he had to search high and low for feed for his animals because of the drought. Can you see the connection between the two? Um, let me put it this way. Let me just throw it out a bit wider. In, um, 
in Hebrews chapter 11. Let me just turn there. And verse 3. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, or at the, through the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. God's invisible will, word created the visible world. So the world was created by the word of God. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be this, let there be that, and there was. I mean, that's in Genesis 1. In, in John 1, verse 1 to 3, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then it goes on to say that everything was created through him, and that there was nothing that was not created through him. Every created thing was created by the word of God. But not only that, Hebrews 1 verse 3, this, that's in Hebrews 11 verse 3 where it says that the, the, the world was created by the word. But in, in, in Hebrews 1 verse 3 it says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact rep representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Not only is the world created by the word of God, it's sustained by the word of God. It's God's word of power, his powerful word that sustains the world. If God withdraws it, his sustaining word, then everything will fall apart. And so it should be no surprise to us that when God's word is withdrawn, when there's a scarcity of God's word, it results in a scarcity of all kinds of other things. When there's a drought of God's word, a famine of God's word, it results in a drought and a famine for all kinds of other things as well. Because God's word created everything and sustains everything. Now, <clears throat> those are the two famines, but Let's look at the cause, uh, the two droughts. And let's look at the cause of these two droughts. Now, <clears throat> two of the, the characters mentioned in this um, passage, this narrative, are Ahab, King Ahab, the king of Israel, who was unfaithful and worshipped the Baals, and who put a lot of Baal prophets on the government payroll and built a temple for, for Baal in Samaria and sacrificed to Baal there. So he was... Not at all a faithful king, you know, faithful to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Um, he's, he's there on the one hand. And then in contrast to him, there's this administrator of his palace, a guy called Obadiah, whom it says was a devout believer in Yahweh. So much so that at the risk of his life, he took a hundred prophets, you know, the prophets of Yahweh that Jezebel was busy slaughtering, and hid them in two caves, 50 in each cave, and he constantly fed them, you know, with with, with bread and food and water. So, you have this contrast between the two. And <clears throat> I want you to just see a few um, contrasts here. In, in verse, it's very interesting to me. In, in, um, in 1 Kings 18, verse 6. You can just bring that up on the screen again. Uh, verse 6. It, it talks about Ahab speaking to... Next slide. Um, there we go. Speaking to uh, Obadiah, I calls him says, go into the land and, and, and look for some, some grass and stuff um, for our animals. And he says, so they divided land uh, they were to cover. Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. Now, obviously, they physically went in one direction and another, but it, literally. But also figuratively, their, their lives were going, the one was going in one direction, the other one in the other direction. So I just want to contrast those uh, two guys very quickly. Now, the first one, the first contrast we see is, is very powerful and I think very convicting. <clears throat> um, I, I read a commentary on this and a guy 
Raymond Dillard, who wrote the commentary, said, said the following. He said, our priorities ordinarily show up in sharp relief when there are not enough resources to go around. In the life-threatening drought and famine, where was Obadiah investing his resources? Where was Ahab investing his resources? And what about you? So what we see here is, I mean, in in those days in Israel um, and in the Middle East in general, um, kings were often sort of likened to shepherds who, who, who should shepherd their people. In other words, lead them, care for them, protect them, provide for them. And here, in this drought, and this famine, what does Ahab do? He doesn't care for his people. He doesn't provide for his people. All he's worried about is his animals. <laughs> you know? His people are starving. It says in verse 2 that the, the, the drought was severe. The famine was severe in Samaria, his capital. In other words, his people were starving. But God forbid that any of his animals should die. And he should do, lose any of his riches, you know. He, he, he'd search the whole country to find some grass for his animals, but he won't take care of his people. Can you see how the drought and the lack of resources, the scarcity of resources, was exposing his heart and where his priorities were? And you see that his priorities were completely with himself. He was a selfish king. He wasn't a shepherd. Well, he was a shepherd. He was a shepherd to his animals, but not to his people. <laughs> he certainly was not. In contrast to the good shepherd in John 10, he was not a shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. I mean, never, never mind lay down his life for his sheep. He wouldn't even lay down the life of his animals for his sheep, for, 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 for the people that he was leading. Never mind his own life. Stark contrast to the good shepherd, uh, to Jesus the good shepherd. And, but also in this specific passage, in contrast to Obadiah. I mean, think about this. When, when there's drought... There's no rain in those days in the agrarian society. There's no food. So drought inevitably leads to famine. Famine leads to inflation. And even hyperinflation where food prices shoot up through the roof because it's so scarce. And people will pay exorbitant amounts for a little bit of food. So that, that obviously after a couple of years of drought and famine, that must have been what happened. You know, food prices must have been through the roof. And in this very difficult economic situation, and in a political situation where Ahab and Jezebel hate the prophets of Yahweh and are busy killing them, not only is Obadiah looking after Ahab's palace and the people in the palace, he somehow manages to feed a hundred prophets of Yahweh that is hidden in two caves. Can you see how the scarcity also exposes his priorities, which are a lot different from Ahab's priorities. Whereas Ahab's only taking care of himself and his own riches, his own wealth. Obadiah is very selflessly, at great risk and at great cost, I'm sure, to himself, taking care of other people, specifically of God's people. You see, I think Obadiah had learned then already what Jesus said, a couple of hundred years later, in Matthew 6, verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. All these other things will be added to you. Can you see that contrast? You know? and, 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 and I think um, Raymond Dillard is right. We should ask ourselves, okay, 
We see where Ahab's priorities are. We see where Obadiah's priorities are. Where are my priorities? What do I take care of? What do I invest in when things are going tough? What do I invest in when there's a scarcity of resources? What does that tell me about my priorities? So, um, we see this contrast between the two of them. Um, in, in the second contrast we see is that <laughs> the one, the one was searching for Elijah to kill him, but didn't find him. The other one was not searching for, for Elijah, but Elijah found him. Now Elijah is the prophet of the Lord, representing the word of the Lord. Okay? And if you... The, the big difference between Ahab and Obadiah that the, the, the author wants us to see, and, and unfortunately the, the translation, the NIV, obscures it a little bit here, um, is, is the following. In verse 3, it says... Um, Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. And while Jezebel was killing the Lord's prophets, he, was, uh, he took a hundred and, and hid them in the caves. And again in, in verse um, 12, it says, Yet your servant has worshipped the Lord since his youth. When it says Obadiah was devout to the Lord, it literally says that Obadiah feared the Lord. He greatly feared the Lord. And when it says, I've worshipped the Lord since my youth, it says, I feared the Lord since my youth. See, the big difference between Obadiah and Ahab was that Obadiah feared the Lord. Ahab didn't. And because Obadiah feared the Lord, he loved and cherished God's word. If you don't fear the Lord, you won't find God's word even when you're looking for it. But if you do fear the Lord, God's word will find you. <laughs> If you don't fear the Lord, like Ahab, you won't find... I mean, you can, you can cover heaven and earth. You can search every kingdom in the world. You will not find Elijah. You will not find the word of the Lord. But if you fear God, if you fear the Lord, Elijah will find you. The word of the Lord will find you. And then a third contrast between the two is um, <clears throat> the way that they greeted and treated Elijah. I just listen to this. In verse 7, just go to the previous slide. Verse 7, it says, As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him, bowed to the ground, showing respect. Bowing to the ground was a, a very common, still is today in the Middle East, a common uh, way of showing respect to someone. Uh, bowed to the ground and said, Is it really you, my Lord Elijah? And he replied, uh, Yes, he replied, Go and tell your master, Elijah is here. He, he greets him, you know, he bows to the ground, very, very respectful. He greets him, is it really you, my Lord Elijah? My Lord Elijah, with, with, greets him with honor and respect. It seems like th there's another New Testament scripture that Obadiah knew about, even though it was a few hundred years before the New Testament was written. You receive a prophet, in the name of a prophet, you will receive a prophet's reward. Matthew 10. If you receive a righteous man, in the name of a righteous man, you will receive a righteous man's reward. So just the way he, he greeted and treated Elijah with such respect. Now contrast that in verse 17 to, um, <clears throat> to Ahab and how he greets and treats Elijah. 
He says, when, when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? <laughs> uh, and then Elijah answers, I have not made trouble for Israel, uh, but you and your father's family have. Is that you, you troubler of Israel? You troublemaker. And um, the way they greeted and treated Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, tells us a lot about their attitude to the word of the Lord, the message of the Lord. The attitude to the messenger reflects their attitude to the message. Um, whereas Obadiah had a lot of respect for God's word um, because he feared the Lord, Ahab didn't have respect for the uh, word of the Lord because he didn't fear the Lord. You see, our, our attitude to God's word, the way we receive God's word and respond to it, the way we treat the messengers of God, the messenger of God and who bring God's word, tell us a lot about how not only we relate to God's word, but how we relate to God himself. When we treat people who bring God's word, a messenger from God, prophets of the Lord, badly, it's because we don't fear God. Because we don't have a right relationship with God. So, Elijah troubled Israel by announcing the drought, but Ahab was the one who troubled Israel by causing it. He says that in, in verse 18. Uh, he says, um, But you and your father's family have troubled Israel. You have abandoned the Lord's commands, His word, in other words, and have followed the Baals. In other words, here we get to the cause of the drought for God's word, the famine for God's word. The cause was... Hostility towards God's word. Ahab hated God's word. And that's why he hated God's messenger. Why he hated Elijah the prophet. Jezebel hated God's word. And that's why she was killing God's prophets. The prophets of the Lord. And once hostility to the word of the Lord leads to a drought for the word of the Lord. You see... So many times, you know, in our fallenness and in our foolishness, we want to get rid of things not knowing how much we need them. You know? Elijah, Ahab, the king, he, he hated God's word, and he hated God, and he wanted to get rid of God. But when he got rid of God, all the blessings of God left with God. And he started to suffer the consequences of the absence of God and the absence of God's word. The drought for the word of God led to the drought for water. The spiritual drought led to the physical drought. Um, so often, you know, people, you know, who are atheists, who are secular, who are um, antagonistic towards God, say, we want nothing to do with God. We want to get rid of God. He makes us feel guilty. He makes all kinds of demands. And, and, and let's just be honest, that is the reason why people are hostile to God's word. I mean, if, if you look at the history of the proclamation of God's word, it's a history of persecution for the most part. Why do people persecute God's messengers? Because they don't like God's message. Because God's message makes demands on us. If God's message that he is truly God, the Creator, is true, and that He um, 
created us for himself in his image and for his glory is true, then that makes certain demands on us. And that means no one in the world can be neutral towards it. You can't. I mean, you can be neutral to other messengers, but you can't be neutral to this message. It makes too great a demand on your life. If it is true, it has certain implications about how you ought to live. And we don't like that. It, it, it infringes on our human autonomy and our freedom to do what we want to do. And we don't like that. We don't like our freedom being curbed. I <clears throat> heard a, a professor uh, once, I, I can't remember who it was, um, but, but he said, you know, he'd become an atheist, you know, when he went to study. He was in America, you know, when he went to study at some other university in America, he became an atheist. And, and when he's honest, and this was when he was quite a bit older, sort of looking back on his life and sort of reflecting on it. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, you're quite surprised at his honesty and his, his uh, um, frankness. But he said, you know, when I think about it, the real reason why I became an atheist, because I, I, he was raised in church, you know, and he'd grown up in church and so on in America. He said, the real reason why I became an atheist, if, I, if I'm honest with myself, was so that I wouldn't have to feel guilty for sleeping around the whole time, for having casual sex. See, I wanted to have casual sex. And the Word of God made me feel guilty. The existence of God, if there was a God who was going to judge me, that made me feel guilty and scared, actually. But if, there, if I could convince myself that there was no God, then I could sleep around, have sex with whoever I wanted to, have fun, and um, not feel guilty about it. And he says, if I'm honest with myself, that's the real reason. It wasn't really, there wasn't really some evidence, some empirical evidence or scientific evidence or something that convinced me there was no God. I just didn't want there to be a God. And the reality is, in our heart of hearts, we're all like that. We either don't want there to be a God as fallen human beings, or we don't want there to be a God who makes demands on us. Or who will judge us, who will keep us, who will hold us to account. And Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord, those bringing the word of God. In other words, she, she was hurting the messenger rather than heeding the message. And the, the spirit of Jezebel is still alive, very much alive today. People will rather hurt the messenger than heed the message. Because the message makes demands on us. And we don't like that. So, how can we respond to this? Now, this actually, this passage, how can, in other words, how can we respond to this hostility? How can we respond in a world that is either um, disinterested, um, dismissive, or just downright hostile to the Word of God? And this, this passage actually gives us examples of, of people who responded in different ways. Firstly, they are the, the hundred prophets of Yahweh. What did they do? They hid in caves. Now, it's, it's understandable. And I think, in other words, their strategy was withdrawal. <laughs> they withdrew and they hid in the caves. And, and sometimes withdrawal is necessary and acceptable. Sometimes, in certain situations... You have to withdraw. I mean, God, even in the previous chapter, in, in, in 1 Kings 17 verse 2, says to Elijah, go and hide in the Kerith ravine. And, and the Spirit of the Lord hid him so well <laughs> that Ahab 
and, and his whole government and all his, his entire army couldn't find him anywhere. You know, that just shows you. I mean, the Holy Spirit's amazing. I mean, Obadiah had probably been part of that search, you know, because he had to. He's an official of, of Ahab. They said, we've been searching high and low. We've been sending people to every kingdom in the world. We've been searching the whole Israel, the whole Canaan, and we, we couldn't find you. And, and, and I'm afraid if I leave you now and go and tell Ahab, that he must come meet you here, that the Holy Spirit might take you somewhere, uh, you know, who knows where, you know, and I won't be able to find you, you know. <laughs> so sometimes the Holy Spirit will hide you. And when he needs to hide you, he can hide you pretty well. Um, so that's the one option, withdrawal. But withdrawal is only an option for a time. Just like for Elijah, God told him to withdraw in the beginning of chapter 17. But then in the beginning of chapter 18, he says, now go and present yourself to Ahab. Eventually, God will actually bring you out of hiding. The second um, way that you could respond is, is engagement. Careful engagement. That's the way Obadiah responds. During that whole time, all of those years of the drought, all of the years while the prophets of Yahweh are being killed, Obadiah, whom he twice says, feared the Lord greatly, was right there in Ahab's palace, running his, the whole show there, in his palace. But not only was he in Ahab's palace, right there in Ahab's face, engaging with Ahab every day, he was carefully opposing Ahab by hiding the prophets that Ahab and Jezebel were trying to kill, hiding a hundred of them. So there's careful engagement and then covert opposition. One of the, you know, an example of civil disobedience, if you like. And there are many examples like that. I mean, you think about the midwives who had to, who were told to kill the babies in Moses, in the time of Moses. Many examples of civil disobedience. If you have to choose between obeying God's word, God's law, and obeying man's law, you obey God's law. So I think, you know, for those of you, for instance, who are doctors, just to mention an arbitrary example, if the law says you must give people an abortion, but you know it's wrong to give people an, uh, to, to, to do an abortion, you, it, in, in your conscience you understand, and according to the word of God, you understand that it would be taking a human life. In other words, it would be murder. If you have to choose between obeying man's law and God's law, obey God's law, not man's. So in, in, in cases like that, civil disobedience is not only acceptable, but required. But obviously, Obadiah had to very carefully engage with this ruthless, murderous Ahab and Jezebel, the king and queen, who had this power. They had to, he had to obviously very carefully engage. But he did. And for some of you, maybe in your workplace, there's also a lot of opposition to, to God and to faith, to Christianity. And maybe you also have to carefully engage. The point is, it can be done. It can be done. Um, and God in His faithfulness always brings about a change in season, eventually. And, he, and He's faithful. If you fear Him, He'll take care of you, um, like He did Obadiah. And then the third option, so withdrawal is the first option, uh, engagement is the second option, and the third option is confrontation. Elijah, who had withdrawn the, uh, in the beginning of this time and, and hidden, 
now is sent by the Lord to go and present himself to Ahab and actually confront Ahab. And not only confront Ahab, because at the end of this he says, bring the whole Israel to Mount Carmel. And we, we know where that's going, right? <laughs> bring the whole Israel to Mount Carmel with the 450 Baal prophets and the 400 prophets of Asherah. And come and meet me there. It's going to be a confrontation. There's going to be a showdown. <laughs> we like that, don't we? <laughs> um, there's going to be a confrontation. So the, other, the third option is confrontation. And here's the thing. Um, I don't want you to miss this. Because in, in a lot of these stories... Elijah is sort of a type of and represents Jesus in some way or another. Uh, this morning I was preaching about how he stretched himself out on the young boy who had passed away. Um, stretched himself out on him and cried out to the Lord. And this little boy was resurrected. And, and so Jesus was also stretched out on the cross and cried out to the Lord to resurrect us. Okay? So in many ways, Elijah represents Jesus and it's sort of a foreshadowing of Jesus. And here we see, you know, Obadiah, when, when he meets Elijah and Elijah says, go and tell him Elijah is here. He says, please don't do that. You're gonna, you, you'll be sending me to my death, you know. So I'm going to leave you and then the Spirit's going to whisk you away somewhere and, and Eli- Ahab's going to come back to where I told him you are and you're not going to be there and he's going to kill me. And then what does Elijah do? He says, as the Lord Almighty, the the uh, the God of Israel lives, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. In other words, <clears throat> Obadiah knew that if Ahab couldn't kill Elijah, he would, he would kill Obadiah. He would kill the messenger. Okay? And I don't want you to miss that substitution. You see, the reason why Obadiah could carefully, almost covertly engage with Ahab was because eventually Elijah, representing Christ, would single-handedly confront Ahab. Everyone else was too afraid. Obadiah himself was too afraid. He didn't want to confront Ahab. He knew he'd die. He'd run the risk of dying. But Elijah, obviously at the risk of his life, said, I'm going to present myself, according to the word of the Lord, I'm going to present myself before Ahab and I'm going to confront him. I'm going to challenge him. And you see, Jesus, not only at risk of his life, but at the cost of his life, single-handedly confronted evil on our behalf so that we can engage in this hostile world. It says twice in this passage that Obadiah feared the Lord, but it's also clear from this passage that Obadiah feared Ahab. Isn't it? He was afraid of Ahab. And to some extent, you can say rightly so. But, but didn't Obadiah maybe fear Ahab too much? And don't we, who fear the Lord, sometimes also fear Ahab too much? Shouldn't we be a bit more bold in our engagement with the world? Even though the world is hostile. Because Jesus himself says, don't fear those who can kill the body and then can do nothing else to you. I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed the body can throw your soul into hell. 
I always thought that was the devil. <laughs> I thought the devil with his pitchfork, you know, threw souls into hell. But if you can read Revelation, you see the devil himself gets thrown into hell. God is the one who judges by throwing people in hell. What um, Jesus is teaching there is he's saying fear God. Not fear the devil, fear God. And if you fear God, you won't have to fear man. Those two are opposites. So I just want you to search your heart. You know, Where is your heart at in terms of fear of God and fear of man? Are you willing in a hostile world to engage with people and even when necessary confront people because you fear God more than you fear people? Are you willing to do that? Just close your eyes and, and if you find that your fear of man is greater than or as great as your fear of God, then just confess it to the Lord and say, Lord, help me, deliver me from the fear of man by replacing it with the fear of God. You know, there, there are two ways to get water out of, a, out of a jar. The jar is full of water. One way is to throw the water out. The other way is to pour oil in, or to get oil, sorry, oil out of a, out of a jar. Is if you, you can throw the oil out or you can pour water in because the water is heavier than the oil and it will sink down and it will displace the oil and force the oil out. And, and, you know, that picture of pouring water in that displaces the oil, I, I just want you to get that picture in your head. The fear of God is like the water you pour in that displaces the oil of the fear of man. The way to get rid of the fear of man is not just to throw it out displace it with the fear of God so just ask God if you, if you find that your fear of man is too great just ask God for more of the fear of, of him for the fear of God See, we, we know how the story ends because we know what happens on Mount Carmel. We know about the two altars that are built. And we know that in the end, Baal doesn't answer with fire, but Yahweh does. <clears throat> and we know that in the end, Israel chooses to follow Yahweh, emboldened by Elijah's courage and Elijah's victory. And the 450 Baal prophets and the 400 prophets of Asherah are slain. And likewise, our Elijah, the one who is greater than Elijah, Jesus, won a mighty victory, not on Mount Carmel, but on Mount Zion, outside the city of Jerusalem, where he was crucified. And his great victory should embolden us just like Elijah's great victory emboldened the people in his time. And then I just also have a, another thing that the Holy Spirit is just laying on my heart. It, um, there's that, that little place where and we read the story of Elijah and Elisha and we, we see, I mean, these guys are so great. They do all these amazing miracles, healings, resurrections, you know, praying and the rain stops you know and then after two and a half, three and a half years praying again and the rain starts you know uh, announcing droughts and, and then 
you know, announcing, you know, relief from the drought, you know, nature miracles, medical miracles, you know, proclaiming the word of the Lord and it comes to pass. You know, a whole kingdom after him to try and kill him and search for him and they can't find him nowhere. Because the spirit of the Lord has in him. As Abediah said, if I leave here, you know, you'll go up. The spirit might take you, I, don't, I know not where, and hide you. See, <clears throat> the point I'm trying to make is all of those amazing things that Elijah did, he did by the spirit of the Lord. See, we can have that same spirit of the Lord. We can have that same spirit of Elijah had. And God can use us with the same power that He used Elijah. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you received produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jobberg.com